This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Let's face it, 95% of hunters hunt to put food on the table. 95%. That's not what you see. Got to see a lot of cool stuff, uh, meet a lot of cool people. I mean, my first bow hunt, I hung out with Fred Bear, the godfather of modern-day uh, archery hunting. If you're supplying and sending money and writing and signing off a petition to stop the importation of African animal parts, trophies from hunters, you represent the Antichrist of wildlife conservation. We started an organization last year. It's called the Shepherds of Wildlife Society. And we want to utilize this incredible material we have. And we want to put those stories in front, the story of wildlife conservation. Hey, folks, this is Tom Oprey from the Shepherds of Wildlife Society, and I'm here on the Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. I would rest at peace for eternity if my legacy was that I made a positive influence on the non-hunting public about what hunters are and what hunting is. I finally got my buck on our last real day of hunting. So a pro-hunting organization is voting against hunting. And that says anti-hunting to me. There was a year straight where I was averaging up to 200 death threats a day. And I hugged it. Like, I just wanted to hug a bear. It's proven that the average steak in a grocery store touches 50 to 100 hands and machines. And we're putting that into our body. Hey, y'all, Cable Smith, host of the Lone Star Outdoors show here. This is Adam Weatherby. I'm Corey Jacobson with Elk 101. This is Christy Titus. Hey, folks, this is John Bear. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey y'all, welcome to episode 117, but also the very first episode of The Wild Initiative. I'm very excited for y'all to continue on this journey with me, and I'm also very excited to see where this initiative for the wild is going to take all of us. Y'all, The Wild Initiative is brought to you in part by the Go Wild app. Y'all, I absolutely love Go Wild. One of the coolest things is, uh, while it is a community, it is a social media app, there's so much more to it. It is not just another one of those 
those Facebook, Instagram clones that you see going around everywhere. Yes, you can see all of that amazing content that you come across on other social media networks, but the benefit is this is designed for the outdoorsman in mind. There's all of these opportunities to track activities, to tell your story, y'all. And one of the things I love because I'm so competitive is they give you points. Go Wild has this really cool proprietary point system that really revolves around everything you do with the outdoors, hunting, fishing, and conservation. You can get points for logging those trophies, but that's not the only way. You get points for absolutely everything you do relating to the outdoors, whether that's hiking, scouting, or even just listening to outdoor podcasts and make absolutely sure you tag me in any time you log for listening to The Wild Initiative. So if you all want to see what the Go Wild app is all about, you can check out the link on the show notes page or head on over to mygowild.com slash the wild initiative. It'll give you a link to download the app and it'll also show you my points and my percentage of time spent in the outdoors. And y'all, as always, I want to give a huge shout out to Sawyer Products and thank them for their continued support of the podcast. Y'all, if you are looking for the best water filtration, first aid, sunscreen, or insect repellents, make sure y'all head on over to Sawyer.com. Check out their entire lineup of products designed to keep you in the outdoors for longer. Also, as many of y'all that have been following along with my story already know, I have officially quit my day job. I am freelancing and running this podcast full-time. Well, this podcast will always, always remain free to anyone that wants to listen and wants to gain this information on getting into the outdoors. There are still costs associated with running it, and it is, without a full-time job, a lot more difficult for me to cover those costs. So if y'all are fans of Living Country in the City and now the Wild Initiative, if you really enjoy this content and want to hear more of it and keep it free, for everyone. I would really appreciate it if you went on over to my support page on the website at thewildinitiative.com slash support. Y'all, there are a ton of options on there for how you can really contribute to the growth of the Wild Initiative. There's a lot of simple stuff like making sure you're subscribed to the podcast, my YouTube channel, as well as heading on over to iTunes or Stitcher and leaving a positive rating and review. There's also a ton of other options such as shopping with some of my affiliates, buying merch from my store, or even heading on over to my Patreon page and committing to a small monthly contribution. Y'all, there are thousands of you that listen to this podcast each month, and even if just a third or half of you went on over to my Patreon page and committed to contributing just $1 a month, it comes with some amazing rewards, including stuff like ad-free episodes, which I'm pretty sure you're wishing you had right now and you could be integral in really helping me make some incredible improvements to the podcast y'all just a dollar a month you probably end up losing more than that just from the change that falls out of your pocket in the dryer even if you're not sure if you can contribute head on over to patreon.com slash the wild initiative check out all the options and see what's available or head on over to the wild initiative.com slash support check out all the amazing people on the supporters wall who have really taken the next step and become part of the Wild Initiative family. All right, y'all, getting on to today's episode. I am absolutely ecstatic to introduce y'all to today's guest. Y'all, there are very few people on this earth who I could imagine being 
a better inaugural guest for the Wild Initiative. Y'all know how passionate I am about the topics of conservation. That's why, y'all, I am so excited to have on the podcast Mr. Tom Oprey. I actually recorded this episode several months ago while I was at the POMA conference in Wichita, Kansas. I was doing a little bit of networking, talking with a few folks, and honestly, after about five minutes of talking with Tom, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I had to have him on the podcast. Y'all, there are very few people on this earth who I can imagine are as educated and well-spoken on the topics of the North American model of wildlife conservation and the concept of wildlife conservation in general. Tom really goes in depth on the history of wildlife conservation, his passion for it, and why it is essential for the survival and health of our wildlife and wild places. This is an episode you will want to listen to multiple times through. This is a great episode for anyone that wants to learn more about wildlife conservation, for anyone that uh, really you would like to introduced to the concept of hunting's involvement in conservation and why it is such an integral part. So without any further ado, I hope you all enjoy episode 117 of The Wild Initiative with Tom Oprey. All right, well, Tom, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. We had a, we're here at uh, the Professional Outdoor Media Association Conference, POMA. Um, you know, I was, I was invited out by, actually by Several different people were like, Sam, you need to you need to come to this. You need to meet these folks. And um, I, I came out here not really knowing what to expect. And I've had some incredible conversations just it, whether it's about business, whether it's about hunting, whether it's about, you know, anything and everything and just and meeting some great people. Um, so I'm really, really grateful that, that everyone got me to come out. I'm really looking forward to being part of this organization. But, Tom, you know, you're one of the people I got to meet uh, last night. And well, kinda... and, you know, I'm a, a past president of POMA. Yep. Uh, so I was the president about four years ago. I was a board member for seven years and uh, been a member of the organization almost since its inception. But, you know, my background, I've, I've been, I'm a second-generation outdoor communicator. My father wrote for Outdoor Life and Field and Stream for 30 years. I grew up in the Midwest in Detroit. And... Uh, yeah, my father wrote for a newspaper, so I had uh, a pretty blessed uh, childhood in that, you know, not like m- most of your listeners, I grew up in the outdoors hunting and fishing and uh, very, very lucky, very blessed. And uh, through that, those opportunities, uh, we got involved in a lot of cool things, got to see a lot of cool stuff, uh, meet a lot of cool people. I mean, my first bow hunt, uh, the eve of it, I hung out with Fred Bear. The Jeez. godfather of, of, of modern-day uh, archery hunting in, in the world. And uh, so, you know, you don't really realize a lot of that stuff when you're younger. But, you know, now I'm getting a little more advanced in age. And, uh, <laughs> and most people don't know how old I am, and I don't tell them. But, you know, I've been doing this for almost 30 years now. And, uh, you know, as far as communications go, I mean, I, like a lot of people, I had a passion to do something. Uh, watched my dad doing outdoor writing, and, you know, they didn't make much money, so I decided I was going to get in the film business and kind of work my way up the ladder in the, in the real film business, you know, working in Hollywood features to Shark Week for Discovery Channel to a lot of high-end TV commercials, you know, from, you know, all outdoor recreational stuff. I mean, I had about a 13-year run with Sea-Doo Watercraft doing all their advertising, uh, working with some phenomenal people, you know, in the hunting, fishing, uh, marine, you know, boating, 
recreation uh, world and uh, and fishing. And uh, it was always fun to work on that. But 10, 12 years ago, I kind of came back into the outdoor world and uh, got talked into doing a TV show for NBC Sports called Eye of the Hunter. We had a seven-year run uh, and uh, literally we're on on Monday nights prime time 9 p.m eastern against monday night football oh wow so we had the largest audience in all of outdoor television so based on real ratings so it was <laughs> uh it was a pretty cool deal and then um back in 2015 uh a lion got shot named cecil a lot of people have heard of this lion nobody in zimbabwe had ever heard of the lion except for the photographic safari people that were taking people out to take pictures but uh fortunately maybe MB, one or two people in la have heard of it I, you know <laughs> you're, on the, you're on social media i'm sure somebody's heard of it but uh the reality was is uh with that lion being shot and the uproar that came about it uh, no pun intended uh <laughs> we ended up uh nbc got cold feet and pulled the plug from our programming so uh, you know we've uh, we looked real hard at what we were doing and we've been in the film business for a long long time and we're like you know we, we see a need we see a reason uh, to continue doing what we're doing but we kind of need to change that that message so uh, about three years ago we started looking at different avenues to get content out we looked at what the problems were we looked at what's going on within uh, the whole world of wildlife and habitat conservation um, you know there's some there's some great things going on I mean the, the the North American wildlife conservation model you know where you know we as the people own the wildlife and we have these incredible public lands and even if the wildlife lives on your private piece of property you don't own it we all do so we all put in and, and, and pay for that management and when I say all of us it's the hunters it's the people that buy guns and ammunition through Pittman uh, you know Robertson excise taxes and literally we raise billions of dollars to pay for the hardcore science, you know, the biologists and pay for the scientists to work on these things and to pay for the game wardens to make sure we protect those precious resources. And a lot of people don't understand that, you know, especially people that, you know, we saw over the last several years that because of the Cecil Alliance situation, that there was a lot of people that were really out of touch with, unfortunately, the natural world. And, you know, let's face it, that's where we come from. We're part of this earth. We're, we are part of these ecosystems that occur, and we have a huge impact. I don't care where you are in the world. I mean, you could be in the highest point, Mount Everest, and what's up there? You go up there, and there's trash and, 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 and oxygen bottles laying around that are empty. Hell, there's bodies dead bodies up there, human beings that, that died up there. And they can't get them off because they can't fly a helicopter up there. Yeah. You go to the lowest part of, of the earth, the Marianas Trench in the South Pacific. And I've, you know, ever since that tsunami hit Japan, I've always thought there's got to be Fugishama nuclear reactor Jeez. material everywhere. And you know what? National Geographic went down and did a study a couple of years ago and they sampled all these biological, you know, did a biological study on the creatures there. And they found that the creatures in the bottom of the trench have been exposed to the worst, to worst pollutants than the most polluted rivers in China today. And we all know China's got a lot of real problems, you know, when it comes to the environment. Yeah. So that's the legacy that we humans are leaving to this planet. It's what we're leaving to our kids. And um, so we spent the last several years looking at these problems and saying, okay, how can we pull together the hunting community? Well, unfortunately, a lot of the people in the hunting community you know, I, and I'll digress for one second. I've watched hunting, you know, because of my relationship and my father being in the business and stuff. And, you know, I watched hunting, you know, when we hunted, it was because we wanted to put food on my table. You know, my dad, my dad was a journalist. He didn't make 
money. You know, he got to go hunting and fishing. Then he had to write about it, which was 90% of what he did all the time was write and research. But, but the reality there is that, you know, I kind of liken to why we've typically hunted up until about three or four decades ago. The emphasis was uh, what I call a biocentric approach to hunting. It was about tradition, the family tradition, the tradition amongst ourselves as hunters. It was about putting food on the table. It was about being an active participant with wildlife. Because, you know, if you go back to the late, you know, the 1880s when Teddy Roosevelt was riding around trying to find a bison to shoot and there wasn't any bison left because this huge tsunami of European settlement had just gone across the west the midwest and west and you know the first thing what do you do when you when you what do humans do when they come into a new area that no humans are really I mean, <laughs> not a lot of them are there they're going to conquer it the colonial times and yeah uh, you know literally the you know the first thing you do with wildlife is you use it to survive subsist the next thing you do is you kill it uh, because you want to make some money so market hunting look at the bison look at the passenger pigeon uh, look at ducks and geese where they used to shoot them with punt guns because there were so many of them they put these little mini cannons on the front of their canoes and just shoot as many ducks and geese as could and take them down to the market. Um, and we still see, you know, we still see market hunting, what they call bushmeat going on in places like Africa today, you know, where there's a huge billion, multi-billion dollar trade, illegal trade in wildlife meat. But getting back to the United States and our history, you know, after you've, you've consumed those animals for subsistence and for market hunting to make money, well, the next thing you do is you cut down the forest uh, because you want progress. You've got to build cities. You've got to put railroads in. So, you know, here in North America, we cut down the forest and then there's no habitat. So from there, it's like, okay, well, then we want to have our domesticated livestock out there. So the sheep, uh, you know, the goats, the, you know, the, the cows, you know, all these different animals that we want to grow out there. But we don't want them competing for the same forage. So we got to get rid of the wildlife, right? Yep. So we put fences up everywhere. And so at the end of the day, what Teddy Roosevelt saw was wildlife decimated, utterly decimated. Well, don't forget about our our fields of crops as well, which mm -hmm. you know you have to clear out even more even more space for for our wheat and our soy and our and this and that and the other. Yeah, exactly. And so now we're in a situation, you know, a lot of people talk about wildlife issues and like you know we hear about that this animal species is going to be endangered. There's no more lions. There's no more elephants. Poaching, 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 whatever. And I'm like, wait a minute, guys, you don't understand this. In certain areas, certain countries and certain uh, ecosystems, we have way too many animals to the point where they are causing huge problems for the other animals within that ecosystem, huge problems for the, for the vegetation that lives in there and causing huge problems with human animal conflict. You know, I like to tell people, you know, well-regulated scientifically based hunting Never has there been an animal that's been on the quota or the license list that's ever gone extinct. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, it's the opposite. If you were to t see the IUCN, which is the kind of the UN entity, it's not the UN, but it's identified by the rest of the world as being the authority on wildlife issues when it comes to populations uh, and habitat. And there's only two places. They came out in 2016 with a survey uh, or a report, and there's only two places in the world where wildlife is either holding their own or increasing in size as far as population and health goes. And that's North America because of the North American Wildlife Conservation Model. Again, where wildlife has a value where we take care of it where it's important to us we cultivate it it survives it prospers because we have habitat for it and we make that important but then you know, there is in south africa southern africa where wildlife has done really well because of the ranching for wildlife you know the semi-arid areas down there 
they were growing, you know, cows and, and whatever else they could do livestock wise. But those animals have not been, haven't evolved in those ecosystems to, to be able to survive very well. And, you know, back in the 1990s, they realized like, hey, you know, maybe we could have kudu out here again, or maybe we could have bushbuck, or maybe we could have Cape buffalo. And they found out that these animals survive extremely well, and they're worth a lot of money if you can hunt them. And there's also a market to sell the meat, mm-hmm. perfectly legal. So, you know, so there's, there's a lot of great stories out there. But unfortunately, going back to Cecil the Lion, we have the vast majority of the people in our Western educated, and I say that in quotes, educated yeah. civilization, don't have a clue what's going on beyond the outside of their doors or outside of their steel and glass jungles. And it's not that it's, it, it, and it has a huge adverse effect on wildlife and habitat conservation because these people are willing to give money to organizations and groups that want to ban hunting or want to, to stop people from, from managing animals through sustainable utilization, all based on emotion but there's no science. And when there's no value to wildlife, guess what happens? Because the greatest threat to wildlife today is not well-regulated hunting. It's not even the poaching we hear about with rhino horn and, and elephant ivory in Africa. Yeah, that's not a good thing, but it's not going to you know, yeah. cause the elephant to go extinct. Maybe in geographic or small areas it might. But at the end of the day, the greatest threat to wildlife today is us. It's the seven and a half billion people on this planet that is predicted to double in the next 50 years. So what happens? You talked about crops. Well, when you have all these people on the planet, well, first of all, humanity wants stability in life, right? You know, so what do we want? Well, we want to, you know, roof over our head. We want to have clean water. We want to have food, right? If we don't have food, what happens? We riot. Yeah. So there's a breakdown in society. And where do we riot? In the cities, because that's where all the people are. And those people don't have the resources. Yeah, they might have a garden up on top of their uh, of their building. They may have something, you know, growing some herbs or something out on their balcony. They may have some tomato plants out there on the balcony. You know, and that's great. That's wonderful. Um, but when they make decisions every day to buy certain products or to sign a, a petition to ban trophy hunting, which, by the way, there's no such uh, thing geez. as trophy hunting. Uh, hunting is hunting. An animal dies. Okay. Yeah. And billions of animals die in the, on this planet every year in order for all of us to survive. Because if animals didn't die, humans wouldn't exist today. And that's, that's just, it's just the reality. So what we need to do, what do we need to do? We need to work together. We need to understand that if we want to leave this place better than we found it, that we need to put a priority on the habitat. We have to make sure because, you know, if we don't have habitat, you know, if all these people are coming into the fold and there's more birth rates are increasing, especially in third world countries. I mean, case in point, go to uh, Africa and Africa is a big place. It's a continent, everybody. It's not a country. <laughs> and you can take the country of Africa. I mean, the, <laughs> the continent of Africa. <laughs> you can take the continent of Africa and you can literally stick North America, South America, Europe and India and still have room for a few other countries yeah. to fit inside its confines. It's a big place. But you go to something like Ethiopia. Ethiopia is about the same landmass, similar landmass as Texas. And Texas has, what, I don't know, 25, 30 million people in it. Pretty, pretty well-populated state. Yeah. How many people live in Ethiopia? No clue. About 110 million people. Jeez. So I have friends that are hunting operators and outfitters and guides there that have been hunting there for you know, a couple generations. And areas that they hunted in even five or ten years ago 
that they lost. The government wouldn't allow them to continue. These, these are public lands because there was such a stress on creating food and the government doesn't want to have chaos yeah. with its population. They turn these lands over to the public and they cut every single tree down and there's no habitat anymore for the mountain in Yala. Uh, you know, some of the cootie species that are there, you know, these animals that have been there for since the beginning of time. And it's really sad because, you know, if we don't prioritize those places, they're gone. And then there won't be a debate between hunters and anti-hunters because there's not going to be any animals to talk about. So really, you know, we have to understand, you know, when we make these decisions to send, uh, you know, money to the Humane Society of the United States or the Center for Biological Diversity, these people are only have one thing and one thing in common, and that is to raise as much money, to have as much power, to line their pockets, to have as much power as they can by lining those pockets. They hire armies of attorneys. You're paying for, you know, Armani suits and $500 haircuts, and these people are lobbying your governments, or they're trying to get politicians to politicize wildlife conservation. Now, we've had some instances in the last two, three years where we just had one last year in New Jersey where the uh, governor candidate decided that, hey, if you vote for me, I'll ban black bear hunting. Now, New Jersey's covered up, or it was in Maryland, New Jersey, one of those two states, but it's covered up with black bear. And if you don't manage them, which means take some of them out, they're going to get killed. Yeah. And I'm doing a project on grizzly bears right now. You can go to the Wildlife Conservation Project uh, on Facebook or wildlifeconservationproject.com uh, or on uh, Amazon Video Direct. If you're a Prime member, you can watch these projects we put out. But we tell the story of what's going on. We bring in the subject matter experts, the scientists, the biologists, even world-class wildlife photographers. Some of the guys you've met here at Palma this week mm-hmm. uh, even bring in world-class art, wildlife artists because these people are believable and they really tell the story about what's going on. And, you know, we've done focus group research and we look at this stuff and, you know, the vast majority of our Western civilization doesn't want to hear from old white guys trying to tell them, you know, this is what's right and what's wrong. They don't want to hear to the Teddy Roosevelt type of people of the world. Um, But they want to hear from, you know, the biologists, the scientists, the game wardens, they believe them, you know, the, you know, the the artists, because they have a perception that they don't have any skin in the game. And the reality is, is that these people are very influential women, Mm-hmm. You know, women who like to hunt, women who are really concerned about wildlife and habitat conservation, they're great spokespeople. I think of the well-spoken women in this industry uh, are the best advocates we have. It's, you know, guys, we can get chesty with each other. And and like you said, it's the it's the whole concept of nobody wants to hear from the privileged white guy hmm. anymore. And so when you do when you do have those alternative voices, the women, um, children, like younger, younger people in this industry, when you, when you have like a well-spoken young lady in her 16, 17 coming in, she's grown up in it and understands it and takes uh, their walls aren't, aren't up when you, when they come up to them and start talking about aren't there. Yeah. Yeah. The stereotypes, you don't already have this preconceived notion. You know, my, I'll, you have to get, uh, do a, a podcast with my wife, Olivia. 
Livia is just, uh, she is a phenomenal spokesperson for wildlife and habitat conservation. She uh, was Mrs. Nebraska. She used to work at Cabela's. She was marrying Dick Cabela, the owners of the, of the company, their personal assistant for about five years. And she ran for Mrs. Nebraska and won. And she had a platform. When the Mrs. things, you have to have this platform, some mm-hmm. cause. And hers was, you know, the hunter is the ultimate wildlife conservationist. And, of course, she didn't win. Um, <laughs> but she made it She made it to the finals and, uh, and won obviously in Nebraska, but didn't win the, the, you know, the, the Mrs. America contest. But she spent, uh, since 2003, her whole life has been about educating people about the importance of these places, these wild places and the animals that live in them. And the fact that we have to have and take care of these animals, because if we don't, they ain't going to exist. Yeah. And, you know, everybody loves to see birds in the bird feeder. Everybody likes to have a deer in the backyard. Everybody likes to see a turkey or, you know, everybody likes to go driving down the road and see some bison somewhere or some elk or, you know, whatever it is. Well, I mean, you go anywhere that's remotely close to a city where you're going to have tourism, things like that, not even counting like national parks. But, you know, there's some elk. I heard of elk on the side of the road or bison or whatever it is, even if it's a couple of deer. How many cars do you see pulled over on the side of the highway or the side of this main street with, you know, kids hanging out the window or cameras coming out? Every, you're right. Everybody loves to see that. Well, Sam, it's a basic instinct that's in all of our DNA. Mm-hmm. We are all hunters. Now, we don't all hunt. But let's face it, there's a reason why campfires mesmerize every single one of us. It doesn't matter if you live in Madrid or London or L.A. or Toronto. We all love to sit around a fire. And the reason has nothing to do with s'mores or roasted marshmallows. It has to do with the fact that since, I mean, I think we can all agree. It doesn't matter what your religion is. It doesn't matter what your background is, what your nationality is. But we all can agree on one thing. As long as humans have walked on two feet on this planet, we've hunted. And every day, animals are hunting animals because that is how this planet revolves. That's how it exists. That's how it evolves. And, you know, we have to evolve with it. And we have a huge, huge negative impact on it. And so we have to take the time. We have to educate the people in the cities and say, listen, maybe you don't go hunting. But support people who do hunting. And, and hunting has some issues, too. And I want to talk about that. You know, hunting's got some, you know, I've watched it for four decades. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we, like I said earlier, we were talking about, you know, why do we hunt? You know, and typically what I like to say, it's that biocentric approach to hunting. You know, the reality there is that hunting provided food for us, tools, shelter, clothing, all that. Of course, we don't need that now. We can go down to the store. We can buy something wrapped, gift wrapped from the, from the butcher. Um, something that some other farmers corn fed and made taste really dang good. Yeah. Uh, it's got the nice little diaper in the yeah, bottom we, you know, to make well, you yeah, forget that yeah, you know, it was we ever don't, something alive. We don't have to get our hands dirty anymore yeah. because other people do it. And, and what I like to talk to, especially when I see like you know, a 30-year-old housewife with a couple of kids on her ankles and, and she's like, oh, hunters are terrible. You shouldn't do this. And I'm like, ma'am, I, okay, I get it. I understand that. You're disconnected from our natural you know, world. But let me just say something to you or ask you a couple of questions. Do you ever go to McDonald's and buy Happy Meals for your kids? Oh, yeah. Your kids like Happy Meals. Oh, they love them. Okay. There's nothing happy about a Happy Meal. Do you understand that? There's nothing happy about a Happy Meal. I don't care if you got the chicken nuggets or the cheeseburger. You, lady, paid somebody to slaughter an animal to feed your kid. And without that animal, there is no Happy Meal. 
Because that's what the kid wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wants to play with a toy, but he wants to fill her, she wants to fill her belly first. And that is just as perfectly fine. That is why we exist on this planet. And so taking you know, animals and hunting animals, managing animals, taking responsibility for them and their habitat is paramount because we're part of that ecosystem. You know, we, we, we have a situation going on in, in the West right now. I live in Montana and, uh, you know, for 20 some years now. And I spend a lot of time in the mountains hunting elk and deer. And, and uh, I've watched uh, the grizzly bear populations just just continue to grow, grow, and grow. And, of course, you know, since 74, they've been on endangered species list. And, you know, typically animals go on the endangered species list because of two things happen. Overuse or there are other mitigating factors, whether it be disease uh, or drought or something like that, that, uh, that destroys their habitat and causes them to die. Or, or they're over-harvested by people for market hunting reasons. Because, like I said earlier, it's never happened. But since, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, since the turn of the century, when it comes to modern hunting and, and uh, management of North American wildlife conservation model, but, you know, we look at this stuff and, and I'm like, hey, folks, we've got grizzly bears everywhere. And, and the thing is, when Lewis and Clark were coming across the Louisiana Purchase, coming across the Missouri River in my state of Montana, there were tens of millions of bison out there. There were tens of millions of, of elk. There were, there were millions of mule deer. There was three to four million bighorn sheep. And they weren't in the mountains. They were out on the plains, mm-hmm. out there where all the grasses were, where all the food was, along the rivers. And guess where the grizzly bears were? Right there in a minute, because that's their <laughs> predator, and that's yeah. where they're eating them. And you can read the stories in their journals about all the problems they have with grizzly bears constantly, almost every day. They ran into grizzly bears and had problems. Of course, there was no grizzly bears in the eastern part of the United States at that point in time, because man had run them out, because that's part of that whole process I said earlier of, of European settlement and progress. And I say that lightly, progress. Yeah. But the reality there is that we've got grizzly bears in every single drainage now where I live. Um, we have grizzly bears now moving out into the plains. They're historic stuff. And that's great. Um, but we have to manage these animals because if we don't manage them, there's going to be human animal conflict. And we're seeing it. I mean, I, I just, I can, you know, we just had a bunch of bears killed by the, the railroads. I mean, the bears are going to die, but then we have to euthanize bears. As soon as they get habituated to get in somebody's dog food or get into their mm-hmm. bird feeder um, or break into their chicken coop. I mean, we had two bears killed this last week, young bears that were getting into somebody's chicken coop were out where I live, you know, and it's unfortunate that they didn't put a better, you know, you know security measures with hot wires and whatnot, the electrified wires to keep the bears from getting in there. But that's a conflict. So the bears are going to die. Why not hunt them, manage them? The hunters pay for the conservation, they pay for the wildlife management. Let's do that. And let's be a part of this. And people are like, oh, you know, again, it's that disconnect there. People don't understand that we have to be active participants in wildlife and habitat conservation. Otherwise, it's just not going to exist. So these grizzly bears are all over the place. They don't respect mankind anymore because they are the big kahuna in the forest and on Mm -hmm. the plains. And we have instances now, especially around Yellowstone National Park, where we have people out hiking that are running into mountain bikers, running smack dab into these bears, and they're getting killed. And it's happened multiple times every year. I mean, you know, half dozen, ten times a year. 
Okay. Well, then you've got a situation where, you know, these bears uh, during hunting season, when the guns go off, that's like ringing the dinner bell. Yep. And they come right in. And we have hunters that are being attacked and killed every year. Matter of fact, we interviewed a guy that happened 10 miles from my house last fall. You know, he was just walking through the woods and with a buddy of his that was about a couple hundred yards away from him, they were looking for some elk and some deer. And he went through a thick stand of stuff, not really paying attention. And boom, mm-hmm. this big boar just smacked him and ripped him. And I mean, he had, he had, I don't know, he had five or six surgeries to repair Jeez. all the damage. Ripped his knees, broke his fibia. I mean, they had to take pieces of bone because he says, we can't do anything for you. But you go to Alaska where you can hunt grizzly bears and brown bears and you run across a thousand pound brown bear. And it's exit stage left. As soon as they smell you, mm-hmm. out. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing. I say that's self-preservation. And you know, it's reality. Humans are the big kahunas on this planet. We have the greatest impact, negative and positive. So if we have hunting going on in the lower 48 for the grizzly bear, we're talking about an offtake of probably 3 to 5% of the population. And it's all based on science. It's all being run by scientists and wildlife biologists. They won't have a job if there's no more bears and hunters can't. I mean, the, the wildlife's best friend, any animal that's hunted, it's best friend is the hunter. Because let's face it, we value that animal. I mean, wolves. You know, we had wolf hunting open up about eight, ten years ago. Well, seven, eight years ago in Montana. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what. I mean, you can't. Wolves are dogs. We all know how much your dog in your neighborhood can breed, right? If you just let your you know, Ooh, bitch yeah. run around or whatever. I mean, she can have litters, you know, probably five, six litters a year if she wants. You know, it depends on what happens. But the reality is those dogs are also wolves. Wolves can do the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. Our cats are lions. How often does your cat can it have, you know, kittens? And we're not talking one kitten. We're talking yeah. multiple. Lions, leopards, cheetah, they all can breed multiple times a year. You know, one of the things that it's a little always disconcerting for me is that, well, people go, oh, well, there's only 50,000, uh, you know, elephants in this country. And if you shoot one, there's only 49. You know, what happens to the other 49,999? And I'm like, hey, folks, this is a renewable resource. Yeah. They reproduce. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, an elephant takes a little bit longer than most species do. But for the reality is, is that, you know, most animals, you know, if you have a thousand of them, the next year, if you just let mother nature do its thing and you have nothing to do with it and there's no human impact on it whatsoever, you're going to have about 1,500, mm-hmm. 14 to 1,500. You know, on ungulates, you know, so any of your, your hoofed animals, you know, they usually have about a 40, 35 to 45% survival rate, calf survival rate. So, I mean, that's just based on science. And it's like, hey, guys, you know, we need now that we know, do you want to give up your city and let the grizzly bears take over? Do you want to give up your, your, your farm and your ranch and cut the fences down and, and no longer impact the soil or anything else? Because this needs to be set aside for the wildlife. You're not allowed to use it. Do you want to take your subdivision and just abandon it and just bulldoze it all down so that the elk can go hang on there? I mean, you know, hey, I mean, that's really the questions we're asking here Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, it's about the habitat. So what's left, we have to prioritize. And that's really what it comes down to. And we have to get everybody on board, everybody in the cities, everybody in the suburbs, everybody in the country, because this is our planet. This is our home. And if we don't take care of it, we're going to lose it. Well, and you just to echo again what you said, because I think it's such an important point to get across is 
the animals are going to die one way or the other, whether that's from Sam, everything dies. Yeah. Everything <laughs> dies. Okay? Whether that's We're from all going to die. Starvation and exposure. I mean, ever, I think everybody likes to think these animals die from old age and they, I think I've said it before on the podcast, you know, there's this, I think, picture of, you know, okay, when it's time for an elk to die, it, it walks up the mountain and it lays down in a field of clover and all the other forest animals gather around it and I think, you've been, and I think you've been listening to me because I have an analogy. <laughs> it's very similar to that. It, and it's, a, and it's, is that when the lion gets old, now, first of all, lions are living a pride. And yeah. so when, except for juvenile or you know, sub-adult males are usually out on the periphery. So you have one male lion that runs the pride and the females do 90% of the hunting. So when they kill a vildevice or they kill a zebra or they kill a cape buffalo, the lion comes in and does his feeding. When he's done, then the females come in. And when they're done, then the young come in and feed. That's just the way it works. Mm -hmm. And he breeds all those females. So he could be the head of that pride for, you know, five, six, seven years maybe. But eventually another younger lion who's bigger and tougher five years from now is going to kick his ass. So he's going to leave. Well, he doesn't do the hunting. He becomes a scavenger. Mm -hmm. And he's out there picking and getting what he wants. But when that lion gets to the point where he's going downhill and he's no longer able to defend himself, he doesn't climb up on a hill and have all the other lions come up and sing Kumbaya. He's got a pack of hyenas that rip his intestines out while he's alive. Mm -hmm. you know, he, you know, they'll do whatever they can to kill him and eat him. Like I said earlier, everything outside that window of your house, everything outside that door of your city, even in your cities, something is trying to eat something. And that's just reality. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's why we exist here today. Well, and it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, we talk, we kind of touched earlier on the quote unquote trophy hunting. Mm -hmm. And in the, when you look at it, trophy hunting is such a, is a tool of conservation because what is trophy hunting? It's targeting the, call it the largest rack on the animal, the, the, the biggest animal. And typically that is the, the oldest, the, uh, the oldest of the animals. Most, most sometimes often. it can be, it, it depends on genetics. Yeah. It yeah. depends on genetics. There's, there's a and, lot more and to the it, environment but, and the minerals in the soil and a lot of yeah. things like that. But there's a, there's a lot to be said for that is in that, generally hunters will want to target an older age class of animal. Um, and it, a lot of that ties into that conservation because that older age class of animal, it helps improve the, improve the genetics because it brings in new blood when you take out those older animals. And a lot of those animals, they'll, uh, they'll be past their breeding age. Sometimes they can be. So, yeah. and it's not all. Once again, not always the case, mm -hmm. but they can often be past their breeding age. They'll still be fighting, still be healthy enough to be fighting off these younger animals. They're trying to breed. They're trying to breed the the females, but they're not. They're not passing along their genetics anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, hunters all are able to contribute to that by at, uh, basically removing the, that old bloodline and, and allowing new new blood to enter this enter this area. Um, and it's, you know, and, you know, you mentioned Fred bear earlier and I'm, I'm going to make you tell me about that <laughs> because you you can't drop that line and not, uh, not give me the story, but you know, it, it just always uh, that famous quote, I'm going to butcher it right here. I always do, but you know, it's, we kind of touched on it. It's, it's that quote of, you know, uh, I know that the, the fate I bestow is, 
much kinder than nature's way of fang and claw and starvation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it is so true. It, nature's well, brutal. It's extremely <laughs> brutal, extremely vicious. And because we try to distance ourselves from killing, even though we are all into blood sports in so much as that, you know, look at the Roman times, uh, look at football today or hockey. Mm-hmm. I mean, we like watching the fights, right? We like watching people get smacked into the boards. I mean, and that's just in our DNA. It's the way we're made up. But, you know, in the natural world, things are extremely brutal and vicious. As an ethical hunter, what we strive for is a quick, humane kill. We don't want an animal running around maimed or wounded. We want to shoot it to the point where when it's shot, it doesn't even realize it's been shot and it drops on the ground. And in, in that is if as an ethical hunter, you have to have expert ability in whatever means of take, whether you're using archery uh, or a, a firearm, you must practice. You must have the ability to make that shot, to make sure that animal doesn't suffer. And and there's reasons for it. One is that, you know, if the animal suffers, then it affects the quality of the meat. You know, they get endorphins and all this, you know, hormones and whatnot that just fly through its meat. And it does affect the meat. It makes it a less, it makes it more gamey, less palatable to us. Um, and, and, and it's just, no, I mean, let's face it. I, who wants to sit there and listen to, you know, see an animal in misery? We don't like to watch people that, you know, and that kind of brings me to a point that, that in our Western civilization, Again, our educated Western civilization. We don't like the thought of death, especially our own. We like to hold death at arm's length. We don't embrace it in our society. Now, ancient societies always embrace, you know, that were involved in that natural world, embrace death. Death is ultimate. It's going to happen to every living being on this planet somewhere in its lifespan. So it's real easy to make hunters out as bad people, especially by these groups that are trying to generate money and power because the rest of the society is kind of like, oh, you're the killer. You know, you want to go out and kill these things. And, and, uh, and it's sad that that's the case because, you know, again, there's nothing wrong with that Happy Meal. There's nothing wrong with the cheeseburger. There's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, you, you paid a corporate farmer, a corporate rancher to, to mass produce all this stuff and put it all in a great big bin. And then here you go. Here's your burger. You don't know what's in it. You don't know where it came from or anything like that. Well, I was a hunter. to paint an assassin. Yeah. You're, you're literally just paying someone else to do your dirty work. It's like you don't, you don't want to you don't want to do the deed so you're – you're hiring a hiring a third party assassin to to make this kill for you. Hundred uh, percent. You, you you're literally paying someone else to kill an animal for you because you don't want to get your hands dirty. And, you know, and animals. You know, like we said earlier, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for wildlife. You know, whether it be surviving and the tools and all stuff. But even in modern day age, you know, uh, you know, all these ladies that love the high end perfumes, right? Well, guess what the primary ingredient is, the base ingredient in all the best perfumes in the world? Castor oil from the beaver. And the only way you get that castor oil is to kill a beaver. Now, you might be anti-fur, and you might be wearing perfume, but you're a hypocrite. Anybody who's against, you know, for me, I look at it real simple. I want clean water. I want clean rivers and streams. I'm a trout fisherman. I love to eat fish fresh out of the stream or fresh out of the lake or fresh out of the ocean. I want to see healthy forests. 
I mean, I, I, I understand a lot about forestry, been around it. I look at trees, I look at their, you know, I, I can look at a tree, I can see if it's got bug infestations, I can see if it's got disease, I can see if it's healthy or not. But I, you know, and I own some land and I'm always constantly looking at my big 300-year-old ponderosa pines and all that stuff. And, and I've got, you know, I've got owls in my forest, I've got elk and deer and black bear and, you know, mountain lions. And I mean, that's, I love it. But I want those healthy forests. And I want vibrant wildlife populations. I want wildlife to have a healthy place to live so that it can continue to reproduce forever. So if you're against hunting, then you're against me and you're against those three things. Think about it. Because what are you doing? When you make a decision, when you get up in the morning, you flip the switch, the lights come on. Where does your electricity come from? Do you know? Did it come from hydro? Did it come from coal? Did it come from natural gas? Did it come from thermal nuclear? Nobody knows. They don't care. The next thing is they walk in the bathroom, flush the toilet out of sight, out of mind. Where does your shit and piss go? Do you care? No. I just don't want to deal with it because it stinks. <laughs> but it has an impact. What's the next big decision of the day? Is it a chai latte or caramel macchiato? That we have to change. People have to start thinking about, because you know I, I have young kids, you know, 5 to 15, and I constantly tell them, for every action, there is, and they look at me now and say, reaction. You piss that off, you're going to get your ass beat. <laughs> but the reality is this, though. We make decisions every day, whether it's buying decisions in a store, whether it's decisions to drive the vehicles or take airplanes. What, you know, we, and all these have an impact. And we have to decide which ones can be mitigated enough to have least, you know, a least negative impact on our natural world. And if you're supplying and sending money and writing and signing off a petition to stop the importation of African animal parts, trophies from hunters to come back to the United States because some lion got killed in Zimbabwe that even the Zimbabweans had never heard of, <laughs> which we could go into that and I could tell all kinds of stories because oh, I know all kinds that. of things about that lion. But the reality is, is that you represent the antichrist of wildlife conservation. You understand me? Mm -hmm. I would love to burn a cross, and not that I'm you know, saying it's a Christian symbol. My point is I'd love to burn a, a tattoo on your forehead so everybody knows that you're the Antichrist of our natural world. And that's where it has to go. We have to get to the point because we, we won't exist on this planet. And it's not, you know, it could not be that far away because you've got to look at the carrying capacity because we are animals. Different parts, different ecosystems can only handle so many people. And, and I tell people, well, well, you know, we got all this technology and all this science. All this. I got news for you. Technology doesn't allow human beings to live on this planet. Yeah, you can extend a, life, a lifetime, you know, mm -hmm. from transplants and disease, drugs and all that kind of crap. And that's but, doing just about the opposite of what we <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, you can, you can do this. But the reality is this, though. No technology allows humans to live on the planet Earth. It's nature. It's the soils. Because without the soils, you don't grow your crops to have your Wheaties. Without the soils, you don't have your Bob Evans sausage because you got to feed that pig. You don't have the soils to grow the grasses to have your grass-fed beef to go to, to, to Ruth Christ's steakhouse. Okay? And let's face it. I mean, you know, walk in a grocery store. Everything either comes from a plant or an animal because that's how we are designed to survive. Mm -hmm. So the decisions we make, if we don't support a healthy planet, if we don't support good, sound wildlife and habitat conservation, not preservation, 
we need conservation means the wise use. If we don't utilize it, it won't exist because it'll have no value. And we see this in Africa. We see this in Tajikistan. We see this in Kyrgyzstan. We see this in all these different places where wildlife in these third world countries, you know, high and mighty Western civilization says, oh, well, we won't allow you to bring some elephant ivory back to our country because they're going to go extinct in your country. Well, no. Botswana today has over 150,000 elephants in its country. You know what the carrying capacity is for that country for those elephants? 40,000. So imagine this, just to put it in people, just to put it in layman's terms. How many people live in L.A.? I think it's like four million, four or six million, something like that. Okay, all right, great. So you know the little downtown section right there by the LAX where all the skyscrapers are, which is, you know, maybe, I don't know, what, three or four square miles? Yeah. Take all of those people that are in the outlying greater L.A. area and put them right there. Mm -hmm. Okay? Central Park, New York. How many people live in New York? I don't know, 10 million, 12 million? Okay, let's put all of them in Central Park. How well would the research, how well the trees have? Where are people going to piss and shit? Mm-hmm. It'll be denuded. Everything will die. How are they going to eat? The humans are going to starve to death. There's going to be disease. There's going to be dysentery. There's going to be all kinds of shit going, you know, running through there. It's no different than wildlife. So should we do something about that park or do something about downtown LA if we're going to put all those people in there? Yeah, we got to figure out some way to make it work. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, maybe we don't need to have that many people there. No, I'm not condoning where to go shoot people. But yeah. my point is with wildlife, <laughs> you know, we can manage them. We can do this offtake because you know, the thing is wildlife managers take into account not only what the, the offtake is going to be by hunting, but they're also taking out into account what happens in natural, the natural death rate of these animals. Mm-hmm. What are the predation, you know, as far as what happens, natural disease, just natural death from, from age. So they have to factor all those in scientifically. To come up and make a decision on what's going to happen with those animals. I was having a quote-unquote conversation with someone, basically an argument on Instagram. Uh, and we were talk- talking about that. And he was generally aware of... Oh, gosh. That's for a bird. That's amazing. For those who can't see, he's shown me a photo with Fred Bear. And oh, my gosh, that is incredible. Oh, we're going to segue uh, into that now since you want to ask that question. You wanted something. Oh, uh, no. Well, uh, I'll we'll okay, you want to finish really this. Let's I finish, finish this one. Thought, but, okay. uh, I was talking to this guy, and he was generally aware. He had a base awareness of the whole uh, you know, North American model, and, and that he, he does know that money from hunting goes into, into this. And, um, but I, I, we were talking about this, and I'm like, you know, this is regulated. Wildlife biologists literally dedicate their lives to the – the, uh, the betterment of all of these species as a whole and the balance of this. And he's like, well, yeah, I, I get it. I know, you know, they, they look at the populations and issue tags based on that. He's like, but that only works if there's no issues with weather and disease and, and poaching. I'm like, you really don't think they understand that those concepts exist outside of, they don't just look at hunting numbers. They look at, studies of populations and trends and growth and what the what the uh it's their full-time the job was. that's what they get paid to do yeah and they have a scientific degree to go with it yeah and some of them are doctorates so i mean it's 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 almost like a willful ignorance you just want to you just want to look at it in the way that supports what you believe so you know you 
you don't like hunting. You're aware of this North American model of wildlife conservation, and you're aware that biologists are involved. But I'm going to ignore the fact that they do all of this and they take all of this into account just so I can kind of prove my point over here. They want to spin it. So, no, And just... we see that in politics today. We've seen it with the politicization of wildlife conservation when I talked about somebody you know, up in uh, the NDP government in British Columbia a couple of years ago ran uh, a plank on their campaign was that we will ban trophy grizzly bear hunting. Again, there's no such thing Jeez. as trophy grizzly bear hunting, but they banned all hunting of grizzly bears. And now, you know, we were working with a Taltit nation up there filming this last year uh, on this grizzly bear project. And we're talking to 80-year-old elders. And they're like, listen, we're seeing more grizzly bears than we've ever seen before. Mm-hmm. Now, we lived off the land until the white man showed up. And they started handing us vouchers to go into the store. And, and we totally screwed them up. But before that, they lived off the land all the way to the 1950s, yep. 60s. And so these 80-year-old elders are like, you know, we manage the bears because they competed with us for our ungulates, for our moose and our caribou. So, yeah, they're a very spiritual animal. They're very important to us, you know. But, yeah, we hunted them because, one, we didn't want them coming into our camps and and killing our families and destroying our, our, our resources, especially when you're living off the land. And then at the same time, it's like, hey, we don't want the competition. We want to make sure that there's more moose calves this next year. But they understand and prioritize them as an iconic animal within that ecosystem, just like hunters do in, in, in the lower 48. You know, you talked about this trophy hunting and we've talked about, you know, that this whole scenario about, you know, the, the, the different things that people, you know, the non-hunting public, you know, sees on social media and the mainstream media. And, um, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about why we hunt that biocentric approach. But in the last four decades, I've watched hunting you know, I kind of liken it to real estate. 5% of the realtors usually sell 95% of the real They're the pros. Well, 5% of the hunters put out 95% of the messaging because of outdoor television, social media, uh, you know, blogging, all this. You know, we, we have this huge amount of information that goes out. And what I've seen over the last four decades is a transition from promoting and embracing a biocentric approach to hunting, which let's face it, 95% of hunters hunt to put food on the table today, 95%. But that's not what you see. The general public sees grip and grin pictures, guy holding the lion, you know, guy sitting there doing high fives over his elk, you know, a guy with a tape measure out measuring the thing. So we've gone from a biocentric approach and we've, we've morphed into promoting a egocentric approach. And I like to say there's a dirty three-letter word in conservation today, wildlife conservation. It's ego. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that it's a bad thing in that to achieve and to harvest and or kill an animal that you have sought a specific buck or a specific bull and or to climb a mountain and get this sheep whenever there's a huge accomplishment, you know, especially in today's society where people don't, you know, the big deal is to go play golf. You know, that's a big deal. We went and play golf this week. Oh, okay, great. All right. Well, I climbed a mountain and lived off the land for like a <laughs> week, you know. Um, but the reality is, is and, it, and, it's, and it's hunting has fallen into this, and I, and I really say it's falling into it because of commerce. You know, when you have a product, how do you differentiate your product from your competitor? Okay, well, if I got a bullet, I got to show, oh, well, you know what? I know a guy that got, you know, a bunch of Boone and Crockett record book whitetails using my gun or using my camo or using my optics or, you know, whatever, my bullet. And so then I can go market that and other people will go, oh, I want to I want to get some of these animals because now we have these record books, you know, and the record mm-hmm. books that were started by Teddy Roosevelt and the Boone and Crockett Club, which is the oldest concert wildlife conservation club in the world. You know, 
the reason for it was go back to Teddy's days. You know, the European tsunami had come through a settlement progress and destroyed all the resources and killed all the animals mm-hmm. off, almost all of them. Well, now they've all come back. And so what he wanted is to have a scientific datum. So that's why people submitted information in about antler and horn size so they could have it in so the scientists could look at this and they could trend, track the trends with these species of animals. Yeah, I get it. But I've sat down with the Boone and Crockett people, CEO, some of their board members, and said, hey, in this day and age, if this is truly about science, why does a biologist or scientist need to know who the fucker is that pulled the trigger in the name of his guide? Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm getting? It's propagated this whole industry of one-upping, one-upping, competition. You know, when we did focus group research last year, we asked them, you know, what is your impression of hunters? Oh, they're, they're, they're all a bunch of egocentric, narcissistic, uh, you know, competitive people. They're not wildlife conservationists. Hunters have lost the mantle of calling them wildlife conservationists, even mm-hmm. though we do it. We are it. Anti-hunters call themselves wildlife conservationists, yet they are the antichrist because they don't do fuck all. They don't have any, they don't have any boots on the ground except for in lobbying, attorneys, you know, in the capitals in different states and Washington, D.C., running media campaigns, running one-page ads in Sports Illustrated and People magazine that cost six, eight $800,000, you know, saying, oh, this lion, isn't it terrible that you killed this lion and this is what you did and this is all bullshit? No. What does that do for wildlife? What does it do for lions? Kills a whole lot more lions mm-hmm. because these people are ignorant. Like I said, they're the Antichrist. So what has happened in the hunting community, the hunting industry, is now we have this egocentric approach. And when you watch outdoor television today, you know, I mean, because of, you know, I've been in the film business for 29 years, and I can tell you that 95% of outdoor television shouldn't be on television. You go to any genre of television programming, you know, murder mysteries, even these ghost shows, how many television shows individual titles are produced in those genres yeah, maybe 8 10 12 15 you know across the spectrum in north america do you know how many outdoor shows were produced two years ago i think last night so i did a canvas of the outdoor channel sportsman channel the pursuit channel just three cable channels geez well just judging by my old subscription to that motv app and the fact that it took me about five minutes just to scroll down to the through the featured shows i was well over 250 over 280 shows. Jeez. Hunting, not fishing, hunting shows. <laughs> so first of all, there's and not enough there's not enough money to pay for all of yeah. it. So these people produce crap. It's not well, when I say it shouldn't be on television, it's I mean, I worked in Hollywood. This shit shouldn't be on television. You know, people are on television because they just happen to be the marketing director of a company and they want to be a hunter or some guy's got a silver spoon and he loves to hunt he wants to be on tv to satisfy his ego or this guy says hey we got more money we know what to do with i got an oil well um let's get that's right off all our hunting so there's no living wage for 95 percent of these people yet they put all this crap out there about how great they are as hunters they and it's not all of them there are some very good shows out there that tell the story of wildlife conservation where the hosts are very are good on camera and they're well spoken uh, present themselves well and present the issues well but that's not what the public sees that's not what mainstream Mm -hmm. media sees they keep seeing these grip and grin pictures that repost because it's about oh i got another boone and crockett this or boone and crockett that or a, a safari club international this or whatever and because that's what we put out there you know and again how do you differentiate your product from your competitors you know they see us competing 
and trying to one up each other. And of course, they're always, I mean, let's face it, humans have egos. And even in the days a thousand years ago, you know, not everybody hunted, but hunting was a very integral part of society. You, know, you take a village of a hundred people, you know, well, first of all, 50 of them were probably women. I just throw that out. So 50 of them weren't really hunting. The other 50 people there, the guys, you know, they, you know, first of all, let's face it, not all of them were very good hunters, <laughs> you know? You know, usually about 10% of the population did the hunting for the other 90%. And the other people are good at making moccasins or teepees or, or bowls or arrowheads or whatever it was they were doing. And for some meat, they would take this and make this for you. It was all barter. You know, yeah. there's no money. But that's just the way it is. And if you look at today in North America, especially in, in the United States, um, you know, we have a population where we're very blessed that we have the opportunity to hunt. We have a lot of public lands and we have very good wildlife populations for the most part across the country. So the opportunity to hunt, anybody who wants to hunt can hunt. And because our forefathers were smart enough to say, Hey, the wildlife is owned by us, not by the, the landowner, like it is in most parts of Europe. Um, you know, we have a vested interest in it. So, you know, we have to look at these scenarios and say, okay, so when we have this biocentric approach, now we're into this egocentric approach. Well, what do we do about it? Because the anti-hunters, because of these things called smartphones and the internet, you can live anywhere in the world and in a nanosecond, you see a picture from a hunter posted on a public social media page. And if you don't understand it because you're disconnected and you don't know where your food comes from, then it's really easy. And you want to keep death at a distance because you're afraid of it. It's really easy to go, oh, hey, the Humane Society of the United States has made these hunters. Oh, they're all a bunch of bastards. All they mm -hmm. want to do is you know, kill themselves. And, you know, and we have these phenomenal wildlife NGOs. So Elk Foundation, Turkey Federation, Ducks Unlimited, uh, Wild Turkey, I mean, the Wild uh, Sheep Foundation. I mean, we have all these great wildlife organizations. And they've done incredible jobs for wildlife cons and habitat conservation. So... But unfortunately, what do they look like to the non-hunting public? They look like a whole bunch of uh, Elmer Fuds mm -hmm. raising more rascally rabbits to go out and shoot and kill because they only preach to the choir. So, you know, I looked at it, my wife and I looked at it, and, you know, after this whole cease of the lion thing, and we're like, you know what? We got to do something different here. We can't be a part of outdoor television anymore. We can't be a part of this continued status quo because... Hunting, as we know it, is going to get banned or regulated out of existence because elections are determined by 50% plus one vote, right? And mm -hmm. we live in a representative democracy. I live in a state that has citizen initiative opportunities. Many states have that, which means you just got to get enough people of, in every county to sign on a petition, and it goes mass rules. It goes on the ballot. Mm -hmm. Okay, we've had anti. Now, Montana is the largest per capita number of hunters in any state in the union. And we have had three ballot initiatives to ban the trapping on public lands. And they get 40 to 45% of the vote. It's kind of scary. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, nobody understands trapping, you know. And we're not going to get into that today. But yeah. the problem is, is they're doing the same thing with hunting. And we're seeing that with the grizzly bear, the trophy grizzly in BC. We're seeing that in the East Coast with the, with the black bear. And they got more black bears than they know what to do with in the East Coast. Because there's more since the days of the pilgrims landing on Plymouth Rock. There's more trees than there ever was there prior to that. Because the Indians burned everything. Mm -hmm. There's more turkeys. There's more deer. Because there's habitat. And there's more car deer collisions. And you know what to shake a stick at. People are dying. Billions of dollars. You know, the highway insurance. I mean, uh, the uh, automotive insurance people are trying to figure out how to. Yeah, let's hunt them. 
You know, it's that human wildlife conflict. So, you know, what we've looked at is the fact we started an organization last year. It's called the Shepherds of Wildlife Society. And, and our situation is that we feel as wildlife uh, and adventure filmmakers and photographers, we've brought a coalition of us all together. We want to educate children and decision makers. So lobbyists to politicians to the media and we want to utilize this incredible material we have these films and this photography we have and we want to put those stories in front the story of wildlife conservation habitat conservation in front of these people so they can start to understand what the impacts what that downstream what that that you know that reaction is to the decisions they make because we really firmly believe that if we don't take this pretty radically you know, my dad always said, you know, the, the, the very first environmentalist on this planet was the hunter. And that's exactly what we are. We are environmentalists. Now, we might vote for Republicans. We might vote for Democrats. We may not vote at all, but we love and are passionate about the outdoors and we care about it. And you can't deny that. And the people that don't interact with the wild places have got to understand that we aren't the majority. You know, we are just a small minority of the population. But we may be the last bulk work to hold back the tsunami of humanity because what the greatest problem for wildlife today is us and that seven and a half billion people that's going to double. So, Well, then in hunters, we're so busy half the time, too, fighting amongst ourselves because... You know, yeah, don't even get me started there. So one of us, that's a, that's a whole nother. I, yeah, I, it's I just ego, did a it's power. It's the same thing. You know, it's nothing oh, yeah. about. So I end my presentations really simple. If you truly think you're a wildlife and habitat conservationist, ask yourself one question at the end of the day. And that one question is, are the decisions I made today in the best interest of wildlife and habitat? Or are they in the best interest of the dollar? The South African Rand, if you're dealing with captive bred lions, uh, your business, your organization, or your ego. Again, it's real simple. Are the decisions you made today in the best interest of wildlife and wildlife habitat? Because if you can't say yes, you can't claim to be a wildlife conservationist. <sighs> it's... There's so many places I want to go, but I, this this would turn into a four hour podcast. Yeah, um, no, I got to do and, another yeah. one anyway. So. <laughs> but you know, I would that say you know, if people want to get more information about what we're doing, just go to shepherdsofwildlife.org, and they can participate in, it, be involved in some of the things we're doing. Uh, we've got lots of content there for people to watch and be a part of, um, and you know, make a donation. You know, because we're using that money to create educational material. We're targeting teachers through social media with this content, targeting other you know. Uh, folks, like I said earlier, the politicians targeting the uh, uh, the media and just saying, here, you need to understand this. We see this going on the ground. I just spent three weeks in Africa and Zambia working on a project. I'll be going back over to Zimbabwe here at the end of next week for a couple of weeks. I'll be in China next month. You know, I'm watching, I'm seeing these things, and we have a really unique perspective. We're very blessed. But if we don't do something now, we're going to lose it. Mm-hmm. We're going to lose hunting, and we're going to lose the habitat and the wildlife that exist so uh shepherds of wildlife foundation i'll make sure to link to that on the show notes page. Shep- shepherds of wildlife society society but Sorry. it's the shepherds of wildlife.org yeah. yeah. uh, and uh, i'll make sure to link to that on the show notes page 
Um, if people wanted to follow along with, with you personally, where can they find you? Well, you can always find me on Instagram, Tom Oprah official, or you can just go to Facebook and, you know, I'm posting every day things we do and crazy stuff that we experience and stuff. And you can also catch Olivia over there, Olivia Oprah. Uh, so Nalos Oprah. So she's, uh, she's on Instagram and Facebook. All right. So one thing I always like to end with, you know, I, I kind of told you that it, this podcast is really geared towards people that are new to hunting, uh, people that may be that di- that didn't grow up using you know shooting with dad or granddad uh coming in from uh, non-traditional hunting backgrounds and so say um you know you're you're talking to someone you know you're on a you're on a trip to New York or whatever and you're talking to someone they're like you know I've been really thinking about getting into hunting you know I hear hear what you what you've said about conservation I'm mm-hmm. really interested in this but like I don't know anyone I don't have these I don't have the resources I don't have the background there's so much to learn. I don't know if this is for me. Um, I'm interested, but yeah, I'm a little intimidated maybe. What, um, what advice or words of wisdom would you give that person? I mean, the first thing is just get outdoors. Get out into the great outdoors. You know, I mean, as much as going on a hike for the day, go up and get off the trail. That's the key thing. Don't go to a big national park. Go to a national forest. Go to a state forest. Or if you know somebody who owns a ranch or a big piece of ground or if there's something with a power company or something like that that's available where they allow public access. And if you go to private land, make sure you get permission. You know? And then go out and explore. Look for things. Understand it. Research it. I mean, this day and age with information, you want to learn how to go fishing, hunting, camping, backpacking, kayaking, what any of these things you want to do. You can Google it. And if you're a millennial, you can watch it on YouTube. Somebody's got a video. I got tons of videos out there <laughs> to see what's going on. But the reality is, is that, you know, go back to the shepherds of wildlife.org. We have a section in there about ethical hunter, modern ethical hunter, uh, our principles and look at those things and see what they are and then research what it is to do those things and look at organizations. You know, first of all, what are you, what is your ultimately you want to do? Do you want to put food on the table or do you just want to be an active participant in wildlife conservation? You know, your fishing game departments at every single state has people there that our taxpayer dollars pay for to let you know and help you and guide you. There are sportsmen's groups, sporting, uh, you know, like the, not necessarily shooting, but sportsmen's clubs all over the United States. You can Google one, and I'm sure there's one probably in your county. And just go to their meetings and start talking to people, and you'll be surprised. Hey, yeah, you know, you want to go fishing, you want to go hunting, this is the time you go. Here's the licenses, here's what you need to do. You know, if you go down to the stuff, of course, any of the sporting goods stores will outfit you if you can afford to buy stuff, but you don't need to buy that expensive stuff. You know, I mean, you can go to, you can go online and you can, you can buy used guns. Um, you can buy them classified bows and arrows, you know, then you want to have an archery tackle shop to teach you, you know, what to do with modern archery tackle. Cause it's not like picking up a bow and chucking a spear. <laughs> um, it's very technical, uh, technologically advanced, but, um, again, go to our website, look at those principles of modern ethical hunter and then start to research what it is you're interested in, but go explore. Go see what's on the other side of the mountain. Go see what's over on the other side of the valley. Go look at those places. Identify, you know, get an identification book on all the flora and fauna, all the plants. Understand what the different plants are. Identify them. Look into herbs and medicines. Look into what wildlife conservation is done in those areas that you're interested in, you know, whether you're interested in just putting, uh, you know, food on the table. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is hunts, the founder of Facebook. 
mean, I, I found I've that got out, a video. I want to say a year and a half ago. Yeah, so I'm no, like, he's, that he's got away. an egg going and he's cooking a wild boar that he shot up, I think, at the Hone Ranch, uh, you know, north of L.A. Yeah. You know, and he's like, I want to give my kids, you know, a clean protein source, GMO, uh, steroid-free protein. What a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. You know? And it, we should all do it. And, you know, and, and then you go to certain countries like the, uh, the northern uh, European countries like Sweden. Sweden, they hunt, I don't know, 80,000, 90,000 moose a year they hunt, they kill. And you can actually take your moose and sell it to the grocery store. Yeah, but you keep some of it, but a moose is a big animal. Yeah. But, but we don't, they don't have the laws like we have in the United States on, you know, the you know, USDA this and this regulation and this red thing. No, no, no. Hey. You know, and when I tell hunters, one of my principles of modern ethical hunter is that you must every year give game meat to a non-hunter. Not a hunter didn't wasn't successful mm-hmm. to someone who's never had game meat before. Bring them some ground hamburger from your deer or your bison or your elk or some some duck breasts or you know bring them some fish or whatever that is from harvesting nature because nature is it, 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 there is a bounty there for us to harvest but because our population's high human population we have to be careful how much so we can only take mm-hmm. so much so that it continues to 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 reproduce and 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 and, and populate that caring you know that that ecosystem and those woods those forests those fields you know and that's a healthy thing in our planet because that's the way the planet's always been so real simple just do a little research but go out in the outdoors go explore walk down the beach but get the heck out of la you know (laughs) go up go up you know go up in the mountains you know in the sierras even in los angeles Mm -hmm. not an hour drive away Mm-hmm. You can be off the trail, walking through rivers, walking through trees. It's, it is so accessible yeah. if you look for it. And, and hunting is a challenge, okay? To learn how to hunt, to learn how to be one with the woods, to understand the patterns of life in the wild, to understand why the deer is there or why the quail's there or why the elk's there or why the wild boar's there. They live because they have places where they, they eat, places where they rest and sleep and they have places that they travel to and fro and then they have places they go to, to reproduce to mate okay you know we go to the bar right go find a gal or go to the grocery store get some food well we do the same exact thing right but we don't ever think about that way because unfortunately humans kind of have a high and mighty impression of themselves self-impression mm-hmm. of themselves and uh, but we do have a serious adverse effect on our wild places and we just have to take responsibility for them and that's that's what we have to do. Otherwise, it'll be gone. Well, Tom, I really appreciate you taking the time. I, I <laughs> this is one of my absolute favorite podcasts I've ever Thank sat you. down no, and recorded. No, it's been a great pleasure. Um, and uh, I look forward to uh, talking again sometime in the future. Well, in two years, Palma's going to be in Kalispell, up in my backyard, so you can come to Montana. There we go. And then we can do a podcast about um, whatever's going on in Montana. That I'll tell you what. And I go fly fishing. I never need an excuse to come to Montana. That's. It, uh, home let's just say that's that's where my heart knows home is already so i'm just it's just taken the, my body a little while to get there so awesome well i appreciate it again like you said if anybody's interested in what we're doing go to the shepherds of wildlife.org uh you know contribute shoot us get us on our, our uh, newsletter and uh we really appreciate the support fantastic thank you so much okay All right, y'all, that'll do it for episode 117 of The Wild Initiative. I hope y'all really enjoyed that one. I had an incredible time talking with Tom. Y'all, I could not have asked for a better guest to join me for the very first episode of The Wild Initiative. 
Y'all make sure you head on over to the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com slash 117. Check out all of Tom's info along with the Shepherds of Wildlife Society, as well as getting links to everything we talked about in today's episode. Make sure y'all head on over to mygowild.com slash thewildinitiative and check out all the different ways that you can get points by logging time in the outdoors in the Go Wild app. Also, y'all make sure you head on over to sawyer.com. Check out all the incredible products that Sawyer offers to help keep you and your family safe in the outdoors this season. Finally, check out today's conservation partner, the National Deer Alliance at nationaldeeralliance.com. Find out how you can sign up for more information. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to y'all again next week, but in the meantime, I hope this episode inspired you to get outdoors, get involved, and make your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from The Wild Initiative family, and more. 